Welcome to this episode of Exceptional People, a show delving into the minds of exceptional people doing extraordinary things. I had the opportunity to sit with former Mr. Tasmania and Mr. Australia bodybuilding champion and current Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner as well as full-time filmmaker Darren Petty. Darren tells me about his progression through the ranks of competitive bodybuilding as well as his transition of not only a player but also a teacher in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He now travels the country creating short social media films for clients and delves into the very tragic circumstances that led to that life-changing career decision. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Darren Petty. Darren Petty. Is that actually your signature? Or is this something that you create? You found a font that made it look flary and exciting and it's artwork. Cl- it's, it, let me tell you, it's close to my signature. Yes. Um, I sent it away to a um, to a graphic designer and they sent a couple back and I chose that one. So it's three or four different different signatures and I liked the, the variations, but I went with that one. It's close to my original signature, um, but that's the feel I wanted to go for. The signature sort of look, mm. you know? It's, it's, it looks like it's got a bit of flair. It reflects what sort of work you do with your filmmaking. It's sure. Anyway, I'm, I'm using my arms here, which you can't really see. We're actually videotaping the start of this. So people, on, people are watching this. This is what I feel when I see this signature, you know, the hands. You'll have to watch it on video. I'm sure Darren's going to put it up on his... Uh, I guess it adds that sort of credibility. And you know that in, in this day and age, the signature's gone. Yes. No one wants an autograph anymore. What do they want? Selfie. They want a selfie. Yes. Right. But yes. I wanted to bring that little bit of nostalgia back with with uh, with the autograph. So it's not really my signature. It's not really signing a document, but it's more it's more giving the vibe of an autograph. And that's that's pretty much where I wanted to go with it. And that's the idea behind it. And the films is obviously in the bold print, um, adding that adding that um, you know what does this guy do? Film, you know. So uh, yeah, I I uh, contacted you about a week ago, and I said oh, I would like to take uh, I would like to know a bit more about you. And we didn't have that much time, so you were then you told me you were coming down to Melbourne, and sure. coincidentally you flew in on the Wednesday, and the Wednesday, Wednesday is the Vic Night Market, mm. and without even much uh, convincing, boom, you're there for your camera. Can you tell us about the experience? The Victoria Summer Night Market happens Wednesdays during the summer from five till ten. Can you give us your first thoughts when you first turned up? uh... Well, look, obviously you and I had spoken leading up to that uh, on various different levels. Um, uh, Actually, I think the way we came to to become uh, known to each other was through Grant Brown. Yes. On your previous um, podcast. Hello, Tazzy. Tazzy Brown, best (laughs) in the business. Now, uh, through that, we came in contact. Yes. So... So then you've asked me to come down and um, jump into the uh, the Vic Summer Night Market and do a bit of filming. And of course, you know, I'm up for every opportunity. Uh, I just put a post on my uh, Facebook page the other day, you know, create your own opportunities. And you, I, I believe in this day and age you have to. You can't sit back and wait for an opportunity um, to land in your lap. You can't expect people to be paying you hand over fist for your for your services. You, you, everyone's out there. Everyone's got the skills. You need to have uh, a point of difference, and that is the ability to do that work on cue. Uh, and that's the way I looked at the the project you presented me. So now that I've gone, uh, I came over to Melbourne and um, turned the camera on and did my thing. I've actually got a, a raw cut of that. Um, in my computer that I did this morning, um, even from just filming last night. But it was a, look, it's a magnificent experience to be able to walk through and see so many people. 
doing so many different things with food you know not just not just the preparation and and the delivering of the food and people enjoying the actual food uh, you know because it's from all all different countries from all over the world from what i saw uh, but the entertainment value of that market was amazing you know the flan- the fa- the flamboyant uh, the flamboyancy of of what those people were doing had people dancing you know <clears throat> selling their food dancing and uh, explaining their products through uh, visual um, one guy was pumping out sausages by hand, you know, <laughs> unbelievable. How do you, I didn't think you could do that uh, on site, but he's doing it right in front of me and I videoed it and it looked magnificent. There was bands playing, people everywhere, kids, you know, little kids, babies, up to, you know, the elderly and it was just a magnificent experience. And you know what, I got there at, um, I think it was um, around six o'clock and it was kind of quiet, so it gave me that leeway to get a lot of good footage close up of these people preparing the food. But then a few hours later, I went away and got changed. It was bloody hot, P.S. Yes. It was hot there. So I went and got a shower and I come back and it was pumping. You know, band was playing and there was people everywhere. It was quite amazing. Uh, and obviously something that's um, quite regular in, in Melbourne to have, you know, busy, exciting festivals and, and markets of that like, you know. But I'm from Tasmania, so it's a little bit little bit quieter down there. A Salamaca market is good, but, um, you know, it's a little bit more low-key, right. the Salamaca market. But up here in the uh, summer night market was just absolutely pumping people everywhere. And look, you're shoulder to shoulder with these people, but there's no there's no angst, there's no nothing, there's no bravado. I'll tell you what, I've never seen as many beach muscles not on the beach, I'll tell you. Okay. wasn't just the muscles that we had at our stand either then, right? That's right. So, yeah. look... I came to your uh, your stand, Sam, and it was absolutely phenomenal. I, uh, you gave me the feed, right? Yes. So yeah, what, what, did I, what did you serve me up? Uh, we had uh, the mussels, the grilled mussels, uh, marin- we had garlic prawns, we had mussels in marinara sauce, uh, we also had the uh, garlic, uh, the Kilpatrick's, the cheese mornay, uh, you know. And you served that to me on a better uh, rice. The lot, on a better rice, of course. You know, and it was absolutely superb, and I... And I, and I and I got that into me, and it gave me the energy to keep going. And I kept going through the whole market. I was looking at New York waffles, and I was looking at pavlovas, and, and all this type of thing. And it was just phenomenal. You know, it was just a phenomenal experience to to engage in. But look, if I had a, if you had to come to me and ask me to do that as a, as a portfolio project, and I had to turn around and said, look, you know, it's going to cost you X amount of dollars, I would have put a roadblock in the way. Mm. You know, it would have been, you know, with the videography and with filmmaking, you also have to prove yourself. Yes, there is an element of hang on. Do some work for me. I'll see what you like. Not, mm. you know, you can you can share your YouTube links and all the rest of it. But at the end of the day, uh, people want to see what you're what you're good for. And and if you're willing to do the work, you can be successful. So a project like that, for instance, do you take as much footage as you can as a filmmaker? I've learned a few things over the years yeah. of footage. So do you actually go in with a plan, or is it something that you just take all footage? I go in with no plan. Yes. Uh, at all times, so I never have any storyboard. I never have any uh, cue cards. I never use any scripts. I've never used to date. Well, let's put it that way. So I'll go into the I went to the market and I just see. I wanted to I want to see how people vibe with me. Some people don't understand or don't like or feel pressured by camera, and I try to make feel, people feel as comfortable as possible. It's not just the camera. It's got to be. They've got to speak to me. Mm. So I go in and I introduce myself and I speak with people and I smile and I, and I let them feel comfortable and then I do my job. But look, the more footage you get as a videographer, filmmaker, I like to call myself a filmmaker, not a videographer. I, I, all I know is how to turn it on, to be honest. I don't understand shutter speed or anything like that. I don't even know what that is. So here I am with my camera 
And uh, I try and get as little, this will sound strange, but I try and get as little footage as possible. Really? Okay. So that when I get back to the cutting room, I get my edit, editing software out on my, on my MacBook Pro and I, and I sit down. I just sat down in the lobby of the uh, hotel this morning. I sit down and start to edit. I like to edit eight seconds, 10 seconds, 20 second clips, not four minute clips that I've got to go through and, and decipher. Because let me tell you, of two hours of what I did last night at the market, I probably did three or four hours of filming. I want to pull a two-minute clip out of that, out of, out of that time, you see. And it's the same with all the other film work that I do. And I do a lot of different film work with a lot of different people. And what I've learned over the time is not to set the camera up on a tripod and walk away and just let it gather film. I have to be on that camera by hand. So all the film work that I do is by hand. I never, I try never to put the camera down or tripod it. I have a tripod so that I can actually mm. handle the camera. But I try to uh, gather the... Um, gather up the footage by hand and I like to hold the camera actually on my chest so that people can look into my face. Mm -hmm. I never put the camera between myself and my and, and, and my subject or my people because then they feel like, uh, you know, it's a bit confronting. So I like to put the camera on my chest and I look at the person in the face and I look at the person in the eyes and I have a conversation with them. And they always say, everyone always says to me, where do I look? In the lens or, in, or talk to you? And I say, always, please talk to me. Mm. It makes them feel much more comfortable. Yep. And then the camera disappears. You know, but to answer the question, I, I, I try not to get as uh, I try not to get a long bit of footage. I try and get snippets of actual action mm -hmm. of the of the real stuff. I want to see people moving. I want to see people talking. One of the big things I love is people having laughter. Mm -hmm. You know, people having enjoyment. I try and if if I shoot a scene and somebody's um, not enjoying themselves or look a bit down about what they're doing, whether they're serving a uh, you know a plate of mussels or or the hot or the or the sausages and they and they're not. Uh, genuinely happy about what they're doing, I can't use the footage. Yeah. You see? I get that. Uh, and But it was perfect last night. Everyone was so happy. So my job's easy. So it sounds like you've refined this process from five years ago when you first started. Can you give us something uh, the first time you took your camera out and you wanted to make? Uh, sure. Uh, is it, uh, you're obviously not doing eight-second bursts. No, I learned a long time ago. In the early st uh, in the early stages, I had so much footage, and, and I would max out, you know, like your SD cards. And well, back in the day, it was just phone, right? So we had an iPhone five or whatever we had, and we walked around with that. And I'd max those phones out, and I and I found it really hard to um, get back to a computer to to get rid of the footage and whatnot. So I learned that early on. But you know, I started film. I started f I started taking photographs when I was young. And all my friends used to say to me, Dan, why do you take so many photos of everything? What are you taking photos of everything for? Subsequently, uh, sub subsequently I've lost those um, those albums, unfortunately. But I mean, I've always taken photos of everything we did, whether it was going on a journey in a, in a car, whether it was drinking at a party, whether, whether it was enjoying a birthday party, whatever it was, I was always up for uh, handing the camera to someone and saying, look, can you take a photograph of what we're doing and what mm. we're up to? And always did that, always. I wanted to capture memories. That was what I wanted to do from a very, very young age. I'm talking in my teenage years, mm. just to capture, um, you know, the memories of what we're up to. Because I think it's important, you know, because once you once you move on from a from a time period, uh, unless you've got footage of that or even a diary, which I don't like to keep a diary, but you know, the the photographs for me were, were my version of keeping a diary of events. Okay, you know, and that turned into film because. You know, we've got the photographs and that's all well and good. And back in the day, we had albums. We had photographs in an album. Yes. But these days, it don't exist. But now we've got Facebook, we've got Instagram, um, even, you know, we'll be talking about um, plat social media platforms that store photos, you know, right. your Facebooks, your Instagrams, not so much your Twitters and that, that sort of thing. But then I thought to myself, look, the photos are fantastic, but you know what's even better? You know what trumps that? Sorry to use no pun. <laughs> <laughs> 
Sorry, Trump. You know what trumps the photographs? Film. Right. And film, film nowadays is king. So look, I started to uh, play with film on my camera and I'm a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu um, uh, martial artist. So that was you know, fantastic to film. Fantastic to film um, us doing the techniques and us training and I'd even do some instructional work and I'd speak um, on camera and that's how I got started. And then it just went from there. You know, I, um, I just got so involved in this film work and, and it went from just straight film, taking a film and dropping it into a social media platform to then thinking, hang on, that doesn't look quite right. That doesn't look quite professional. I'm going to edit that. Mm. So off I went and I learned how to edit. And I used a simple um, simple um, um, piece of it. Um, what's the word for it? Uh, software. I used a software called iMovie, um, which believe it or not, and you, you might want to edit this out because people won't believe it. I still use iMovie today. Okay. And I'm telling you. IMovie, Old school. Mate, kids use iMovie. Okay. It's like working with crayons. That's how that's how the equation works. As long as, the, you, get, as, long as you produce, man, it, it does the job. Yes, it does the job, and it's very easy for me. I'm very busy now with videography and filmmaking, so I don't have the time to sit down and learn how to use Final Cut Pro right now. It's sitting there ready to go. Mm. Um, but the work that I do um, speaks for itself, and that's so, all there is to it. So that that's a question I was going to ask. Are you an embracer of technology from the start? I can imagine you handing over to your friends your Hanimex camera. Do you remember those ones? Or are you too young? But you know, uh, then as things develop, are you interested in finding out how it, it, this could be a better shot? Sure. Is this something that... It's funny you use the word develop because that doesn't happen anymore Yeah, well, you don't take it to the chemist anymore, right? No way. There's or something that's gone that we were discussing uh, earlier, along with video stores. 100%. I think they still do it at Harvey Norman, you know, and you see people on there and you just want to come up to them and hug them, you know, and say, <laughs> look, there's a better way. But uh, look, if you want to put a photograph on the wall, you, of course, you've got, to go and, mm. you've got to go and get that done. But nowadays it's a quick computerized flick of a dollar coin and you've got a photograph you can frame it and walk out the door but look you know it has evolved and i do embrace technology and i think that you have to you know um with the iphone that i've got here that you um obviously that you can't see on the on the on the podcast but the iphone 6 uh, plus you know it's an amazing camera with all sorts of megahertz uh, that's all I know about that. Okay. You know, but you look, sound pretty not like you know what you're talking about there, Darren. That's at fine. the end of the day, I'm, I'm I'm a storyteller. Yes. You know, I work with a with a guy in Tassie, um, Luke Jackson. He's a he's an ex Olympic um, uh, boxing captain for Australia and the London London Olympics. And look, you know, I tell his story. I don't do anything fancy with a camera. I've got no big fancy qu- camera equipment. I've got no. Um, I use one camera. I have a, I use handheld. And that's it. We use a 70D camera with a wide lens and I use a Rode mic. We pick up his audio and we capture we capture the images. But then it's up to me then to go back to the editing room and then I turn that edit, turn that film into a story, you know. And and I use music. You know, music's a huge part of what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also a pain in the ass with uh, copyrights and all this sort of thing. And people say to me, oh, Darren, can you use a Foo Fighters song and this and that? And I say, look. <laughs> no, I can't. You ring up the Foo Fighters and ask their permission, we'll go for it. But look, I've embraced technology, of course. I started off with videoing with the phone, which is you know, fantastic. And for the everyday user, I encourage people. People say to me, Darren, where do I get that camera from? I say, what do you want that for? Go, you, go get yourself, um, pull, the, pull the phone out of your pocket and start. Start filmmaking. Because the technology uh, these days, I just read something the other day. Uh, one of my mentors that I watch um, in America was talking about... Um, 
you know, they sent the man to a, they sent a man to the moon with this little tiny computer, this seventy pound computer with all these, with absolutely nothing that couldn't even couldn't even run a bus these days, mm-hmm. you know. And we've got iPhones, you know, that are, that are literally thousands and thousands of times better than the computer that sent a man to the moon. So it takes like it takes the need to learn this technology away. Mm. And look, that's a sad that's a sad little concept to think about. You know, we've got all these people that have done photography and videography for years and years and years and learnt the cra- learned mm. the craft and universities and all this sort of thing. I've just turned around. The camera that I've got, I just turn it on. Mm. Literally turn it on. I'll get rid of the lens cap because it was annoying me. Yeah. I just got rid of it. I've got a I've got a lens protector that gets scratched and Luke Jackson keeps sweating on it. But look, I just get rid of it. I just put another one on. Mm-hmm. You know, so the technology these days is is anyone can use it you know all i do is turn it on i point and shoot that's what i do so it's like you're it sounds like you're an advocate because i was going to ask you a question you are a filmmaker your equipment is not cheap uh you see people walking around with um iphones thinking they're doing exactly the same as you and there are people out there that make film that a bit snobbish they look down on these people. Yourself, you seem to be advocating for the yeah. Get nothing, the iPhone out and do it. It's got nothing to do with the technology at all. It's got mm. to do with your your ability to tell a story. Mm. You know, and I've been a storyteller from a very young age. I'm an artist. I can draw. I used to design tattoos and sell them to shops and things like this. I was a drawer. I was creative. I'm a drummer. I know music. I know beat. Um, you know, I play my djembe drum. You know, all the time in my house. I try to keep that up. You know, I try to keep that skill going. But um, definitely, people, if anyone out there is at all is listening in, in the realm of videography or photography or whatever you like or filmmaking, I absolutely encourage you to start uh, telling your story or, some, or other people's story. If you don't want to be in front of the camera, that's fine. You know, just tell other people's story. But make sure you do it with an artistic uh, thought process, not a techno- technological uh, process because this day and age, you know, no one's got time to be learning that stuff and mm. we don't need to. You know what? YouTube, that's how I learned my craft. Okay, it's simple as that. I learned that as much as I need to know, but the base and the and the guts and the and the and the and, and the platform of what I do is all based around creativity. You know, you make me feel better because I've got this recorder over here that's got uh, a two hundred and twenty buttons, Darren, and all I know is to press the red button just to, and I keep checking to see if the red light is on and it's still on and we're still recording. So yeah, that thing there probably get. Um, Neil Armstrong to the moon. Uh, quite possibly. And mate. back. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so I'm, you make me feel good that I don't have to learn everything. Of course, and we're you, sitting here, we're talking into some microphones and we're broadcasting to the world. Nice. You know. Now, you mentioned Luke Action Jackson, Tasmania's featherweight boxer, future yes. world champion. Of course. What's the plan there? What's the plan? Why, why are you on board? The plan is no plan. No that's plan. How, that's, okay. how we, that's how we work, you know. Okay. You know, I jumped on board with Luke. Um, look, it's over 12 months ago now. We had the anniversary of uh, the documentary that I made with Luke. I rang him up on a Monday. I said, look, how you going, Luke? I'm Darren Petty. He'd heard of me. I'd heard of him. That was it. I said, well, I'm a filmmaker. I wasn't really at the time, you know, really in-depth with my craft. I was just playing around. But I thought, you know what? I'll give this guy a call and see what happens. I called him on a Monday. We started filming on a Tuesday. Simple as that. Luke and I are very similar in nature. We've come from similar backgrounds and we like... We, uh, they call him Action Jackson. Uh, you know, that nickname may... I'm not sure exactly where that nickname came from. It was maybe just placed on him from somebody. Maybe Grant gave it to him. I'm not too sure. But look, I, I consider that he's Action Jackson because you know what? He gets the job done. And, mm. and no matter what, he's always working and striving for the next thing. If he's, and 
he's he's always on to doing something. He, he runs and owns his own gym. He's a um, got a professional boxing career. He's been to the Olympics. He's done it all, and he's doing it all, and he continues to do it. And that's the way that's Luke and I get on very well because of that. Because you know what. We both work hard, we both work quickly, we both don't muck around, simple as that. So I started with Luke on that Tuesday a year ago um, and I, I put it to him, I said, look Luke, I can, um, I'm a creative guy and I'm a filmmaker, I can tell your story. If you want to lay down your story as raw as you possibly can and we'll put it to a documentary, I thought, you know, seven days, maybe, maybe a week of filming and then I'll do a week of editing and we'll be right. Four months later, hundreds of gigs of footage and, and travelling, we're in Hobart, uh, Sydney and back and, and you know Sydney's quite a big part of his life he's up there with Billy Hussain and he trains up there with Body Punch Gym and um, that's a big part of his story so off we went up there and we and we put that into the documentary as well we went to his mother's house in Clarendon Bar we talked to his father Tony Pettit you know amazing guy Luke's father's you know an inspirational guy and, and we whether Tony um, realises this or not we get a lot of uh, inspiration from him listening to his stories okay. you know? but Luke Luke is uh, Action Jackson for a reason, and I think it is because you know he's in constant action all the time, and we we feed off each other. So look, I'll go in and I'll go in and uh, make a uh, a film with Luke, and I'll and I'll film it on the spot. We'll do him training, we'll do him chatting about what he's doing with his life, and I'll turn around, walk to his office, and I'll edit it and upload it to Facebook right in front of him. And then you know that's the process with Luke. You know, I've always uh, promised Luke that things are instantaneous with him. Uh, I do have a lot of other. Um, filmmaking jobs that I do but uh, Luke takes precedent to that because you know we're trying to do something big with Luke we're trying to uh, really boost his profile uh, through social media and all the rest of it and film is doing that film is doing such a such a really uh, vast job of that because it allows people to get an insight of Luke that you wouldn't normally get right a photograph can only say a, 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 a thousand words you know v- film is a million trillion words mm. you know that's the, that's the bottom line yeah. of that so we were able to tell Luke's story and look we got the documentary done it took us three months and it was to be honest I got a little bit sick of his voice because I was up till three or four in the morning every night I was doing 20 hour days on this documentary and it was Luke's voice over and over it's not yes. just not just the conversation it's looped looped loop, yeah. loop. and let me tell you I learned how to edit a very, a very lot because he swears a lot right? <laughs> <laughs> so I had to think about what I was doing with his swear words can and I just end. say you missed a few bits because I was watching it the other night with my son my 12 year old son and my wife was in the background the other two sons are in the background too and there's Luke going F this F that and I'm thinking oh and I can see my wife looking up at me and I'm thinking, oh, I'm just doing a bit of homework here, babe. You know? I'm sorry, Sam, I did my best. <laughs> you know, I think that's why it took three or four months because Luke is very raw and real, yes. you know, and he doesn't pull too many punches except when the, when Win TV come in and, and the news crew come in and interview him. Then he pulls all that back. But right. With me and with Luke and I, it's it's very uh, it's very raw. And I, I told him from the start and he agreed, you know, let's be raw as we can uh, and we do that. And that's what I think we have to be in this day and age. You have to be authentic and you have to... Luke's very authentic, you know, sometimes a little bit too much authentic, you know, to people to stomach that. But Definitely uh, comes out, you know, in the actual what you see. You mm-hmm. can feel that he's given, he's given us everything. He's not holding much back because when I asked what plan did you go in, I'm assuming you turn up with your camera. Something is up there, but it could go in a whole different direction, which you're happy to run with on the nothing's day. There, nothing's yeah. there. No, there's no plan ever. I'm going to Sydney uh, next week. Okay. So I'm flying up to Sydney with Luke. I'll take my camera with no storyboard, no action plan, no list, no anything. I've never written anything down with film. I capture it and then I take it back and I try and formulate a story based on what we've just filmed. And that's all there is to it. And Luke looks a professional on camera, let's be honest. You yes. Know, he's had cameras in his face, you know, he's part of his most parts of his life. Uh, he's been a been a, over, you know, 40, 50 countries doing professional boxing and mm-hmm. amateur boxing and look 
you know, he's not shy of a camera. But we don't have a plan. I've never got a plan for anything I do. I just shoot. And if it very rarely I'll shoot and it won't it won't come to anything, you know, it'll it'll fall flat. But, you know, I, I have the ability and I say this to a lot of people, I can make something out of nothing very easily. You know. So uh, do you, are you asking Luke any questions along the way? Are you trying to direct it? You're thinking, yeah, this might be good if we can move it in this direction. So are you course, throwing out any bait I'll, or questions? I'll, absolutely. And yeah. I do that with a lot of people because yeah. some people that I come in front of and uh, stand in front of and say, look, you know, go ahead. And they go, yeah. nothing, nothing. <laughs> okay, okay, ready? Okay, I want you to say who you are, where you are, what you're doing. Ready? Okay. Go. And, yep. they, and they hit that. Okay. They? And as soon as they get destroyed, they run with it. But with Luke, um, you know, he'll say to me things like, um, was that all right? And I'll say, of course, perfect. Or I'll say, hang on a sec, what'd you say? Oh, you missed this bit. Let's go back. I want you to add this little bit in because that's where we are. Just tell people where we are. You know, things like mm, that. Mm. Little things, tiny things. But mm, Luke's a professional. Mm. He's very easy to work with. It's always one take with Luke. Um, like I said, he's a professional. But one take Jackson. Oh, one take Jackson. 100%. Yeah. Every single time. There was a scene in a sauna for his last fight. We sure. had to get down to his featherweight. Uh, and uh, I got to featherweight, yes. You got to featherweight I too. Did. Are you in there or you, did you send someone in with a camera? I'm in there, mate. I'm in there with my shorts and t uh, shorts and singlet. And you know what? The funny thing is, none of these guys are sweating because they're so fit. I'm sweating my ass off. <laughs> so I'm in there. I'm in there with the camera. And the first time I went in, I said, Oh, you know, I thought to myself, Oh, look, this camera, I don't know what it can do. Who cares? Just go in. It started to fog up. And I yeah. thought, Is that in the lens or is that what? I don't care. Yeah. I just filmed it. Yeah. Um, but we're really in the sauna with Luke and. And he really does that tough, you know. He's losing, you know, 10 kilos in a, in a fight camp or more. Um, and in the last processes, he jumps in the sauna and it's hard. It's really hard. And, and I try and capture that because I think it's important for people to see every single aspect of what he's trying to do. And in that sauna, it's tough, you know, especially for a guy that's 57. Well, he walks in the sauna at 60, 60 kilos and in one hour's time, he's got to be at the weigh-in station. Mm. He has to weigh 57 kilos mm. or he's done. Mm. Or, the, or the Hobart City Hall doesn't go ahead, mm. you know. So he's got to be there to do that job and he always gets it done. Uh, he's a professional in that way. And there's other blokes in there that are fighting on the card with him and, you know, they sit in there and they always say, you know, Luke Luke does this does this the best. Luke's the man and and they follow Luke for guidance, you know, and Luke leads those guys to lose that weight. And Luke will sit in there all day. If he needs to sit there for eight hours, he'll do it. He loves it. Unbelievable. And it, it says, I remember, true professional always makes weight. That's Luke's words. And uh, you sitting in there, you feel like handing him a glass of water? He looked like he was suffering, poor guy. Yeah, look, you know, it's funny because when Luke's in there, he gets quite emotional, yep. what I've noticed. Mm. Um, you know, Luke, it's funny that you've brought this up because now it's made me think think back to the filming. And I've been in there two, three, maybe maybe three times with him now and that's when Luke gets really raw mm. and he thanks a lot of people in, in the song mm. because I think he is going through that tough time and he needs to devote his mind from the pain that he's going in to really using that time to thank people. And he gets quite emotional in that, in that sauna and he thanks a lot of people. And, you know, credit to Luke. Um, at the end of the day, he doesn't need to do it. He doesn't need to be there. He's got his gym. Yeah. You know, he's got his business. But yep. he does it because he loves it. He's in that sauna because he loves to be in the sauna. Mm. And if you tried to drag him out of there, you'd be in for a fight. Anyone else, you say out and then jump out. Yes, right? yes, and yes. He'll yes. be in there. He'll yep. go back in. He'll go back in. He'll go back in. Amazing guy. So even his thank you speech, uh, he got quite emotional there too. He was saying he went places that he'd never been before. And uh, again, that was amazing. It was great that it was captured. But a lot of people, you know, if you go to the boxing, you hear they're always thanking sponsors and they're thanking their mum and dad, which is fantastic, thanking God, whatever. But he just really, he, 
he really opened up in front of the whole place to tell them that mentally. Do you you remember that? I do. And uh, what were you thinking while you had while you collecting all this footage here? Look, you know, Luke, believe it or not, um, and I think it's quite apparent actually uh, the the way he uh, professionally hand, handles himself, but he's quite transparent. Mm. He's quite authentic. I mean, he's done a twelve week. Uh, he's done a, a twelve, uh, a eight, ten, or twelve week training camp. He's been in the sauna. He's dropped that weight. He's waited in the dressing room. You know, to he wants to be on at ten o'clock. He doesn't get on till twelve o'clock. So you can understand the pressure that he's under. Then he has to go out and fight a guy at twelve o'clock at night. Amazing. You know, it's crazy. Other people would just crumble under that pressure and run home. He gets to the end of the fight, and he becomes quite emotional. Mm. Like it's an emotion drop, I guess. Mm. I guess you could explain it. So he. So he's in the ring. It's all said and done. He's won the fight, and then he sees his followers and his and his fans and his and his. He doesn't like to use the word fan. He likes to use the, uh, different words for for the people that follow him. But look, Luke's standing there. He's got everyone's attention, and instead of talking about sponsors or t- talking about how good he is and all this sort of thing, he chooses to be raw and real and tell people his emotion, and that's very hard to find in a person. You know, he talks about being pushed. He won the fight. Mm. Doesn't need to do anything else. Mm. But he just taught. He, then the last fight he did, he talked about being pushed to a to a place that he'd never been pushed before. Something he didn't need to say, but he said it because it's real and it's on his mind. Not only it's on his mind, it's in his heart. Luke speaks from the heart. When he speaks from the, from the mind, it gets pretty raw and real, and <laughs> there's a lot of editing involved. But when he speaks from the heart, it's real. You know, and and, and Luke's learnt that from a very young age that. Well, I guess I, I can't really speak for Luke, but I think he, uh, he's been very raw and real, and not a lot of people can handle that in a in a, in a characteristic of a person, you know, to be raw and real, because uh, a lot of people like to be sugarcoated, sugarcoated, yes. and cotton cotton wooled, and all that mm. sort of thing. You know? mm. But Luke will just tell you straight, which is I think is a great quality in a guy. So the, this wasn't meant to be a commercial for the documentary, but it is a good documentary. So what's the name of the documentary? Where can people find it so we can... Um, so it's the Luke Jackson documentary. It's on, it's on my YouTube cha- channel, um, Darren Petty Films. You can you can search up Darren Petty Films and you'll find it there. Um, you know, it goes for an hour and a half. And if you've got the bandwidth, um, watch it straight through. If not, wait for it to load a little bit because mm. it is an hour and a half long. Mm-hmm. Um, look, um, I'll let the cat out of the bag now. We're looking to put it to DVD. Okay. Uh, we're going to be doing that in the next few weeks. Uh, we're going to have it um, in the middle of having a beautiful cover art made for it. Um, and we're going to put it into a beautiful case and we may have to put it down into a one or two or maybe three DVD set because it is quite big in, mm-hmm. the gig, in gigs. Uh, but we're going to use that and release that as an anniversary uh, timing and we're going to have the Luke Jackson documentary on DVD. It's going to be beautiful for people that you know, know Luke very well that know of Luke, it's going to be great for like a gift, you know, give someone a gift. Yes. People that don't have the bandwidth because one thing I didn't think of when I released was on YouTube was that, hey, it's an hour and a half long. People don't have the, not everybody has the the bloody super fast, what do you call it, MBN. MBN plan, yeah. You yep, know, yep, that sort of thing. Yep. People have to sit there on their phone and watch this thing at the bus stop. Mm. You know, it's impossible to watch an hour and a half clip. So look, that is on our mind and um, look look out for that for the future, guys. We're going to release the, the DVD of Luke Jackson documentary. So not only been a great fighter, Luke has also been, I've been told that as far as um, Mike Altamiri's manager, as far as all the fighters that he has in his stable, mm-hmm. and I always ask Mike, is it all right if we call them a stable? You know, it's like, he goes, of course, they're all stallions. You know, they're all Ferraris. Well, so, they're uh, all animals. That's <laughs> <sort of that laughs> he is the best marketer. 
he is the one that leads right. ahead and his name on his gloves, for instance. And then Mike finds that other fighters follow Luke. He's uh, puts on his own shows and does a lot of things that he's always leading. Well, Luke's leading business. the way in not only business and, and fight promotions, which I know very little of, believe it or not. I know very little about the boxing um, the boxing community. I know very little of the boxing itself. Every time I get in the ring, I say to Grant, Grant Brown, I say, Grant, did he win? Because I don't know. <laughs> he punched him, he punched him. That's yeah. all I know, right? So, look, um, you know, Luke Luke is leading the way. And one thing that Luke is leading the way on in, in Australian boxing, and look, to be honest, in, in sports in Australia, I would suggest... Uh, you know, obviously I could be wrong on this, but I'd suggest that he's leading the way in social media 100%. Mm. Okay. You know, Luke's social media presence is phenomenal. He uh, He's a perfectionist, as you know, um, as you may know, and you'll know if you watch the documentary, Luke has also a condition um, of obsessive comp- compulsive mm-hmm. disorder. Uh, he struggles with that, but he also uses that as a tool to push his career. So Luke is a perfectionist. He'll train to the minute. He'll train, he'll train all day, every day. If that's in his schedule, he'll do it. He can't not do it. He has to run 800 metres. He can't run 700 metres. He mm. has eight times eight times 800 metres. Now, what did he do the other day? He did 10 times 800 metres. If he went up to Luke and said, look, Luke, the, um, let's go and get a coffee. It's, you know, you've done a fair bit of work now. You're sweating and you're buggered. He would just go blank and not listen to a word you're saying. That's his, that's his nature. He needs to finish what he starts. Mm. And with the social media, he's... Uh, I would suggest, and once again, I don't want to speak for Luke, but I will. Uh, he's obsessive about that, and he's doing a fantastic job. And a lot of the fighters, and even the sports people, or even people in general, businesses, you know, should be watching Luke and what he does with his social media. It's about consistency. Luke's consistent. You know, it's about it's about displaying a great photo. It's about the it's about the positioning of um, you know where he is in his career and all this sort of thing. And he does that so well through social media, through his Instagram account through his uh, Facebook account and a lot of people follow Luke on uh, Snapchat as well because, you know, he Snapchats his training and what he's going through in day to day, which is a phenomenal thing to do. And keeps you busy too. Um, I was going to ask you about your social media side of things. Um, this is a business of yours that's uh, flourishing as well. You can go on your website and you invite people who have no social media presence to contact you and you're happy to put together something for them something short sharp which you've done you know hello to cody barrett fitness jackson motors hobar cat center very good uh we, are we call them commercials or uh, social media clips or uh, what do we i like that it's it's a social media commercial and yep. i say to people look people say oh look can you come and do a um, social media commercial for me and i say yeah sure it's 295 dollars for a 60 second commercial and then and sometimes when I'm face-to-face with people, I'm not often, but in a message or a phone call, but when I'm face-to-face with people, it doesn't sound quite right. $295 for 60 seconds of anything, it doesn't sound quite right. But what you've got to understand is this. Social media, uh, the attention. The attention span of social media is what? One or two seconds? Mm. You turn a video on, if it's not kicking off straight away, yes. you read a bit of text. If it doesn't grab your attention straight away with a photograph, if it's just text, you won't read it. Mm-hmm. If it's got a photograph attached, you will read it yep. based on their quality and interest of that photo. Um, but these days, and I can tell you now, you can write this down anywhere you like. Anyone listening can write this down on their wall, on their hand, wherever they want. Video is king and video is taken over. That's it. Social media soon will just be video, but you can't. But you can't have a commercial of a business that runs for over 60 seconds. There's, mm-hmm. a, there's one little thing to that. 
It's Instagram. Okay. Instagram will only hold a 60-second clip. Mm -hmm. So I, I keep these uh, social media commercials to 60 seconds so they can fit them into their Instagram. Um, and obviously, look, I go to it. This is how it works. Someone will jump on my website, darrenpettyfilms.com, and they will, they will contact me. They will ask uh, generally, you know, can you do this for me? And of course I can. It doesn't matter who they are, where they are, travel the country, it's no problem. The base rate for me is two ninety five to, to run down the road and do a social media clip. But if you want me somewhere, I can be wherever you want me, need, need me to be. Um, so I go to that business. I spend, you know, an hour, sometimes more, sometimes two hours. Um, generally, it's about 30 minutes of film for 60 seconds of footage. So... I, I do my time there, I do my 30, 40, sometimes an hour there, then I'll go back to the editing, editing room and I'll spend an hour to maybe three there editing this film and I'll, and I'll deliver it to them. You know, so we're looking at, it's about, you know, four to five hours to produce this 60 second clip, you know. But look, the bottom line, if you want your business to be noticed, it's not television anymore, mm. it's not radio anymore. It, and if it is television or radio, you grab it, you try and source the the media from where it was where it was made, and you try and pull it out, and you try and throw it into social media. Right. If you're in the newspaper, it ends up in social media. Simple as that. I've been in the newspaper tons of times. I get the newspaper, I buy the newspaper, take a photo, I chuck it in the bin, I put it on Facebook, I put it in Instagram. This is the way it works. So look, what do I do? I I use my skill and I make stories. I'm not a videographer by um, by profession. I'm a filmmaker by profession, but uh, below that, I'm a storyteller. So I'll go in and I'll tell a story about a business. I like to talk to people. Not only their product, I can do the product placements and all that sort of thing, but I like to talk to people. I like to f I like to get a real authentic feel for that business and I like to trans translate that to film and then we release it. Those people are then able to share it. Um, I just did one the other day for um, Howes, Howes Automotive um, in Moona in, in Hobart. And, you know, 24 hours, 11,000 people viewed that film. 48 hours, it was 21,000 views. So 21,000 people have seen Howl's Automotive, Howl Automotive um, uh, social media commercial that otherwise wouldn't have. You can put up as much come and see us, text as you like, we're located, da 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 da. There's no one going to have, there's going to be no impressions on that in social media. But a film and a well made film, like we started off and it was the back end of a car, uh, H, I don't even know what the thing is, but it was a black Holden. I'm thinking of that ja that pushing a U challenge that you had for Jackson Motors uh, right, straight so, away. But this, we're talking about this one for now. But, but look, uh, I, I had, and I said, turn the car on and blow the, turn it on and make a rev, right? Yeah. That's all I know, <laughs> rev, right? What's that? What's rev? I don't know. Hit the accelerator. They hit the accelerator yeah. and I rev, and that's it. Yeah. You know, that's how the film starts. Okay. Boom, 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 boom. And it's, it's engaging, yes. you know what I mean? Not to me. Yeah. I couldn't care less. I drive yeah. a uh, Subaru Forester. <laughs> you know, it's in the shop at the moment. I don't know what they're doing to it. But. You know, that's engaging to those type of people and they want to see that raw, they want to hear that, you know, the engine. And I understand that. Mm. I don't understand the cars and how it works, but I understand that these people want to hear that sound because it means something to them, mm -hmm. right? It means nothing to me. Mm -hmm. Broom, broom, broom. That's what I see. But look, that uh, that type of commercial for a, for an automotive place like that with the with the sound of the motor and, and, and then we put the car on the dyno, Again, I don't know what it is, but it's fantastic for that for that uh, for that demographic. So it looked really fantastic, and twenty one thousand people in forty eight hours saw that clip shared everywhere. It's now you can make you could call it the most well known automotive automotive place in Tasmania just based off that. Mm. So look, 
you know, with, with the Jackson one, that, that film actually wasn't for Jackson Vita Company. It was for a company, um, uh, you know, the mud runs, you know? Yes, do, yeah, or, like or the Spartan mud. runs. All and that yep, stuff. Yep, yep. Um, look, Raw Challenge, Tasmania, mm-hmm. okay? It's right. It's a locally owned and operated fun uh, mud run, right? Yes. It happens, um, I think it's March... I think it's uh, it's in March, yes. March twenty seven, um, in in Hobart, and you know they brought me on to help them with their um, with their filmmaking. So yes. I go in there and I make several films for them, and they're sponsored by Jackson Motor Company. So I go in there and they say to me, "What should we do?" Of course, what are you going to do in a car yard? You're going to push a car. Yes, two people fitness cars, fitness push the car. So yes. off they go and they push the car, and we got the guys out that work in the Jackson Motor Company. We pulled them out of the shop and. Um, we said, all right, your guys go. And they're in suits, you know. It's crazy. So we're pushing this car. But that's what people want to see. Yes. It's engaging. It's different, for you know, sure. And you've got people in the back. And we, we the one thing we do with the Raw Challenge is we do a lot of Will Ferrell quotes. They're talking, you know, um, oh, off the top of my, I'm in a glass case of emotion. That one keeps coming up off um, Anchorman, you know. And yes. I, drop in, um, I drop in clips from the, from the videos of that sort of stuff. But, you know, you, we're just trying to be engaging. I'm not going to stand there and take a, vo- a video of someone talking to me. I'm going to take a video of them talking and I'll lay that underneath and I'll be pushing something or climbing something or doing something. You know, I'll do a lot of um, audio underlay. I don't know what they call it a voiceover because the actual track of the audio goes underneath my videos. Okay. So okay. people say voiceover and I automatically think it's wrong. But who am I to say? I don't know what I'm doing. Said Darren Petty, voice under. Done. If people are interested in, in making their own um, social media commercial, uh, as I asked earlier, you usually go into things with no plans, but it's going to assist them. You're obviously going to help them with something, but it's going to assist them if they have a, a rough idea on what they actually want. It's easy. They have to know their business. They have to understand what they're doing. They can't – I mean, most people that own a business, and I'm talking about you know, businesses that people have built, You know, not so much businesses that – people have acquired through uh, ownership or acquired through, um, what's the word when you have a McDonald's and you put them everywhere? Your franchise. Franchise yep. and things like that. People might not have an understanding of the business deep down, you know, the roots and all that sort of thing, but it helps. It helps. If I'm going to, my advice to anyone that employs me to come on and make a social media video commercial for them is to understand your product because I don't. I understand the way it can look. It doesn't matter what it is. I went down to Nitro Lab in Melbourne the other day and uh, put together a social media commercial for those guys. It's chocolate. Syringes, you know, pouring chocolate with syringes. You know, I don't understand their operation, but I definitely can make that look good. Mm. And we did, you mm. know. So, And the guys helped me along by by making it look good, by, by the way they move and, and they're into it and, and, and they're excited. You know, I like, to, I like to go to people that are excited about what I do um, and, and up for that up for the what it is what it is all about and that is it's showmanship you know a lot of people are shy on camera which is fine i can work with that and occasionally i'll make films without people in them no problem just on the product itself but it's great that the person it helps me a lot if they know their product it doesn't need to be a storyline people often say what do we do and i say you do this you do this you go here you go here ready set go and if it doesn't work out we try something else you try a, different, a few different scenarios, but it always works out great. I have a really keen ability to make uh, something out of nothing, and that's the, it's editing. So know? they're probably listening in comfort that it always works out great, but have you turned up and heard their idea and thought, oh, how am I going to create? Easy. Yeah. Right. So Sam, you come with me an idea. Darren, can we, can we do a video on this room and I'll do a push-up on the table and do a <laughs> handstand. I'll say, oh, that sounds really great, Sam. That's a perfect idea, but let me try this first. Nice. And then I leave. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I like it. At yeah. six foot, six foot two. Me? You? Oh, I don't even think I'm six foot. I've been telling people I'm six foot for years, but oh, I think they measured me. They officially, on... I'm one eighty. I think you got to be one eighty one, don't you? Yeah. So, well, let's just call you six foot two, two hundred twenty pounds. I'm thinking your ideas. A lot of people, you'll 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 be in person and you'll say, "Yeah, hey, but we try this," and they look at you and they think, "Yeah, maybe this guy knows what he's talking about." I don't know why. But... I used to be two hundred and forty pounds of muscle. Now I'm two hundred and forty pounds of fat. Well, the muscle career. Let's talk about that because you're a bodybuilder at one stage. I was a big time bodybuilder at one stage. Big time bodybuilder. Yeah, tell oh, me, yeah. tell us when did you it was decide? Was a huge part of my life. Well, yes. I decided that at the age of nineteen, I was, um, I was addicted to drugs. I was taking ecstasy and I was taking speed and I was um, using that horrible bloody thing called LSD and mm. running around and being crazy and running around and fighting a lot. I used to fight a lot in bars and clubs and all the rest of it, you know. Um, and I was nineteen years old, um, and I moved out of home when I was fourteen. So, for, so it was a pretty rough childhood, um, extremely, it was a traumatic childhood. I had a stepfather that um, chased us around the country and I ended up in, uh, I was born in Mordura in Victoria. I moved up to Darwin with the stepfather and the, and the, and the family. Uh, he went to jail, so we fled to Tasmania and that's how we ended up. That's how I, li I currently live in Tasmania. Mm. But the reason why we ended up in Tasmania was because of my stepfather. He was in jail. We fled from him and we hid. And he came down and found us and tried to kill us and all this sort of wow, stuff. Wow, okay. Tried to drive the car into the house and all this sort of business. But then um, then he ended up dying. I think he died in Pentridge. So okay. we're, we're free of that now. That's gone. Yes. But the reason why I started bodybuilding at the age of 18, 19 was to, he was still alive at that time, was because if he did uh, come down and um, if I did run across him, because he's a weedy little drug dealer guy, you mm. know, ta tattoos from head to tail. Once mm. he pulled his penis out in the bathroom to me and showed me a tattoo on the end of his knob, you know, mm. that sort mm. of thing. He's a real bad guy, mm. you know. Mm. Um, real terrible man. He died and we got over that. But then I was I started bodybuilding in, in the hope that um, that if I ever met him, I'd be able to put it over him. Mm. So I started to pump the weights uh, in the bedroom and I was taking supplements that I didn't have a clue about and I was getting dizzy and falling over because I wasn't drinking enough water and all the rest of it. Then I went to the local PCYC and started pumping weights and someone said to me, Danny, should do compete, com you should compete in bodybuilding. And I went, oh, I don't know. I've got no idea what you're talking about. What's that mean? And then... Um, you know, I got a little bit of information off him, and I started to do it, and I signed up for the for the competition, which happened happened to be the nationals, uh, the NABA nationals in um, it was happened to be in Hobart. I think that's why I did what I did. The first bodybuilding comp I saw was the first one I went in. So there I am standing on stage uh, after four years. So I started bodybuilding at nineteen, and I competed. I started bodybuilding seriously about twenty. And at 2004, I did my first competition. I was standing there with uh, six blokes. You know, my whole life was put into this. I did six months of really um, dieting down to this thing. And they said, stand in front of us, do the turnarounds, do your muscles, do this and that. And then they said, competitor one, two, and three, stay there. And competitor four and five, off you go. And I looked down and, ah, shit, I was number four. Off okay. I went. That's yep. it. That's my best experience of bodybuilding. So I took that as a challenge. So I took that and I went, right, I went straight backstage and the next day I was in the gym training for the next one. And I went to 2005. And again, I didn't place too well in the nationals. So I went to the state then the nationals. 2006, I won Mr. Tasmania, Mr. Australia. And I qualified for the Mr. Universe through that in 2006. Mm -hmm. So uh, subsequently, I went from the Mr. Tasmania, Mr. Australia. And they flew me over to Germany, to Nordheim, Germany in 2007. And I placed fifth. And of that 2007 competition where I placed fifth at... Yeah, well, actually, it's a funny thing that I just mucked up that word because the trophy they gave me actually says fist, 5ST. 
Because it's German, right? Right, of so course. So I, I got fist in. Um, Hello to your German listeners. All the German fans listeners out there, there. yet? And he, the funny thing was, we're on stage at this bodybuilding comp, right? The picture of health and fitness and all the rest. Yes. Of it. Smoking in the front row. Right. Blowing smoke at us. Yes. Unbelievable. It's the funniest thing I've ever seen. Anyway, so I'm there. I'm at. I'm backstage. I've just done. I've just gotten fifth at the Mr. Universe in Germany. And I'm standing there and we're all having a chat in different languages and there's translators and people helping us out. And we're all having a chat to each other. And the boys said to me, uh, all these boys from over the world said, look, how much um, how much steroids do you take? And I said, oh, I'll take, you know, this much. I think I was taking 1,000 or 1,500 milligrams of steroids at the mm. time. And they just laughed at me and said, no, you got to triple, quadruple that if you want to go somewhere. If you want to get first, you got to yeah. do this. Yeah. And, um, I made my decision on the spot to retire from, okay. from competitive bodybuilding. So of 2007, I stopped, came back to Australia and... And I picked up uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in uh, 2008. Uh, and from 2008 all the way to current, um, I've been doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I'm currently a brown belt in, in BJJ and I've competed numerous, multiple times, state champion, national champion, Pan Pacific champion, international champion with the IBJJF in Melbourne. Uh, when, they bring the, when they bring the international comp down, I was a champion there. Um, you know, just multiple titles in, in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because at the end of the day, my characteristic of my life is this. Whatever I do, 100%. Nothing else. Through my bodybuilding career, I'd eat at weddings. They say their vows, I'll be eating tuna. 100% every single time I had, I ate every two hours in my bodybuilding career for, what, what did they quote, eight years, nine years, every two hours, never missed a meal. On a plane, I got diabetes. I can't, I have to eat this. Sorry, I, got di- I don't have diabetes, parents. Mum, you know. Okay, um, we're all right. I uh, 100%. So then I went and did Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and I took that extremely very seriously and I became very good, very fast at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because that's where I put my time into. And I'm telling you, I never had girlfriends through this period. I just shut everything out and I did what I did. And now I did bodybuilding. I did Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I still do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I have an academy in, in, in Hobart, Tasmania. Trojan Jiu-Jitsu is my operation down there. And I have kids and teens and women and adults and all the rest of it. So I'm more of a coach now. I'm 36 years old. Mm-hmm. I'm over the hill. Oh, you're old, man. Yeah, you're, I'm, you're I'm done. gone, right? Done. Done. Retirement age. But look, now I've picked up the filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And I do that 100 with 100% of my effort. I'm working 20-hour days. And that's not a joke. That's real. 20-hour days of filmmaking. I, I pride myself in, in the ability to tell a story, but I also pride myself in the ability to tell a story fast. I'm able to film and edit very, very quickly because I've I've honed my craft because I've spent the last five years, 20 hours a day doing filmmaking as I did bodybuilding, as I did jiu-jitsu. So, you know, if you want to get good at a craft, I think we had a conversation in the car on the way here, Sam, you know, if you want to get good at your craft, you have to do it 100%. You have to do it all day, every day. You have to You have to focus and you have to do it. You know, a lot of people wonder why I video silly things like vlogging. You know, vlogging is a new word. I'm not sure if you're familiar, but it's just a video of you, video mm. of your life. The reason why we do that, a few reasons, you know, uh, a lot of people like to be on camera and all that sort of thing. They like to get a message across. They like to portray themselves. That's one That's one aspect of it. Mm-hmm. But the main aspect on it for a, for a videographer, filmmaker, is to practice your craft. You have to be, I make three or four films a day right now. And then I do vlogs on top of that. You know, I'll travel Melbourne and I'll go here and I'll go there. The camera's operating right now. Okay. Hello to everyone. You know, this is the vlog aspect of what yes. I do. And and uh, that's how you hone your craft, by working constantly on it and by evolving every day. You know, I never got into school. I did university three times. I tell people a lot. I went to uni three times. They go, oh, what degrees do you have? You got three degrees? No, no, no. I went there for three, six months. I quit because it's a joke to okay. me. Yes. It's, 
all credit to those guys that do that. But I can't sit there in a classroom for an hour and then go off and do a bit of study and then muck around and have a cigarette break every five minutes and all this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I might be speaking out of school a little bit here. But Hello to everyone in university and hopefully my son's listening to, yeah, it's okay, not don't that listen, bad. Stay in school. Stay <laughs> don't in school. listen to Darren. Don't listen to me on this one. Look, it's just not, it wasn't for me. Yeah. I like to work yes. 20 hours a day. Yeah. I said to the teacher, let's do this, and this, this, let's do this 10 hours a day, 12, 15 hours a day and let's get it done. Mm. Let's just get it done. Mm. One year, six months, not four years for me. I'm not like that. I like to work constantly all the time. You mm. know, just before you picked me up today to come to the podcast, I'm on my computer in the lobby editing. I'm not looking around at the scenery. I'm not doing any of that. Mm. I'm in in the job. That's where I like to be. You seem to be that you've picked things that are very extreme, as in the bodybuilding is an extreme um uh, can we call it a hobby? Because uh, uh, it's not even, sometimes it's not even fun. But uh, same deal with your jiu-jitsu. It seems like you've moved pretty quick. And I was going to ask you, of, uh, you know, I'm a listener of the Joe Rogan experience and I didn't know what jiu-jitsu was until, and uh, he talks about how it's, he has guests on that's t- called it a secret weapon or something like that. Jocko Wilco, I'm not sure if you know him. He sure. uh, talks about that is the secret weapon for superheroes and all that sort of stuff. So it's an incredible, for people that are interested, what's the draw of... Uh, I can understand the bodybuilding draw because you're changing your body. You're starting to look good. You feel good. Everyone's got an ego. But when you talk of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as a martial art, what's the actual draw that people... Why the best would thing I about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is this. I can kill you right now, Sam, and I won't leave a mark on your body. Okay. All right. We're still videotaping. <laughs> <laughs> I can restrict your breathing in a way yes. to bring you back yes. or let you go. Okay. And Joe Rogan talk. Joe Rogan will talk about that. Joe Rogan will talk about Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is the is as real as you can get mm. in as real as that statement can be. Mm. Because we can we can train Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, and I can grab your arm, your foot, your knee, I can grab your neck, I can kill you, mm. I can break your arms mm. Mm. in a second. Mm-hmm. But the art of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is based on the tap. Mm. It's based on the ability to be able to stop that. When you train something like um, uh, taekwondo, karate, things like this, and you pretend, you pretend to do things. You mm. pretend to punch each other in the face. Mm. You pretend all this sort of stuff. Um, but in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it's fully real. But mm. the person will go to the extreme length to when they're just about to pass out, or they're just about to have their arm broken. Let me tell you, arms get broken all the time. But you're not making it that exciting at oh, the moment. Uh, I'm trying to be as real as I can. <laughs> I'm trying to be as truthful as possible. Look at this here. They can't see it on the. Uh, I can't see that on the. Podcast. It's quite a scar across the uh, front of your shoulder, ladies and gentlemen. So there's a there's a couple of muscles in the front of your body called pecs. Yes. Pec major, pec minor. Yes. My pec major was torn off the bone, completely ruptured and yeah. folded in because yeah. I was in an arm lock. And it was held there and yes. it just went bang. And a mate of mine came over and I screamed and all that. A mate of mine came over and he thought it was dislocated, so he's yanking on it. That old, you know, the old yes. dislocation yank. And um, no, no dislocation. The pec was torn off the bone. That might have helped it completely rupture, but who knows? Yeah. But look, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is as real as it gets. Um, and you know, we Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu fighters have the ability to be in complete control. We we focus on the ability to avoid. Always, you, you you'll never meet a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu guy that's a prick. Yes. That's arrogant. That, uh, that pushes the way around because we know of our, our ability to avoid, say, a punch, unless it's a bloody king hit, which they're doing these days, which is um, which has got to stop. And I think it's slowed down a little bit, thankfully. But look, 
unless if there's a, a, a mana or mana, if there's a man or man fight and, and, and you're in the street, we have the ability to drop a level to avoid punches, take a person to the ground and incapacitate them, whether it's through, through a broken leg, broken arm, or whether it's through choking, choking them unconscious. And we have the ability to know when someone's unconscious to let them go. Mm. Um, you know, I've, I've had a few situations as a, I used to do bouncing and crowd control and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, choke a person unconscious. This is back in the day when, when the police didn't really know what was going All on. Right. There's no less cameras. There was no cameras back in the day in Hobart. <laughs> Let me tell you, it's a bloodbath. But look, you know, we'd choke someone unconscious, put them on the ground, they'd wake up and they'd forget what's going on, they walk home. Mm. Sometimes they'd wake up a bit, bit, bit more angry, but the cops were there by that time. Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is the fine art of the ability to incapacitate someone without leaving a mark on their body. That's okay. as simple as I can. Well, you say about leaving a mark on their body. You're the first person that I met. You've got those cauliflower ears there, Darren, with all due respect. That's not an acute injury. That's what you call a chronic, chronic injury. So it's acute is something like a broken arm like yes, that. Yes, bang. These ears come chronic, so over time. So the, over time, the ears will, will um, calcify. Yes. The cartilage in there, I don't know if calcify is the right word. But yeah, the, I've heard of calcified, yes. The I've... cartilage in there will break apart. Yes. The fluid will then enter that uh, enter that breakage, yeah. and then it will fill up and harden. Right. Over time, over time, over time. I've got photographs in my phone where I've taken photos of my ear at the moment is hard. You yes. look at it and it's bubbly and hard. Yes. But there was a time when it was soft and fluidy. If yes. you drain that out, now look, I've got tattoos all over me and all the rest of it. I can tell you this right now. I don't like needles. As simple as that. I do not like needles. You put a needle in my vein, I've got to look away. Yeah. I could never get on the heroin. Okay. I, I could never go down that path. I uh, I hate needles, but I sit there and I cop the tattoos and all the rest of it. But look, I stopped draining my ears because of that. Because uh, needles just, I don't like them. So my ears have now calcified and they've they've congealed with this hard, um, hard um, matter, which was the cartilage, broken cartilage and blood and whatnot and off a go with these ears so how are you getting the sh hits to the ears while, so you're, no while you're doing jiu-jitsu there's no impact it's no. constant rubbing so the, ah. the, so the ears will rub on the gi which is the uniform for the um, Brazilian jiu-jitsu the ears will rub on the gi they'll rub when you're getting choked with the arms and all the rest of it they just get constantly bent and pushed and, yes. and all the rest of it and um, if you're doing jiu-jitsu for long enough some people get the cauliflower ears straight away I don't know what it is but um, You're not making it that enticing to it's me, not, Darren. Look, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is for a special kind of person, and um, but to be honest, to be brutally honest, we have um, I've got youngest of four on the mat, four years old on the mat, and they're doing their thing and they're having fun and they don't really realise what they're doing, and hopefully they stick at it long enough to become a weapon in 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 the, in the art. But look, we've got four-year-old boys and girls up to all the way to twelve-year-old, and then we kick into teenagers, and those guys are just I've got a I've got a um, a young man by the name of Isaac, and he's a he's a violinist, he's a he's a musician, he's a wonderful young man, but he'll rip your head off, you know. Beautiful young man, but he'll tear your arms so off. So don't go heckling him when he's playing his violin. Is that yeah. what you're telling us, Darren? No, oh, mate. So your ears, uh, well, just last one on the ears. A lot of you guys wear them with pride, though. Yeah. People probably there are some people that are educated and look at your ears straight away and think, I better not mess with this guy because I think he knows something. What's well, funny? It's really wise. funny actually because a lot of the time, and I was on a tram once, and um, <laughs> there was a there was a fight, you know, and the, and the security guard didn't look like he could handle himself that yeah. well, and yeah. he's on the phone, and they're and they're saying, oh, oh, me tickets somewhere else, go stuff yourself, and he had alcohol and all the rest of it, and then he looked at me, and he looked again, and he felt, you could see his face go, oh, it's okay because this guy. And after it all went down, he came up to me and the guy was gone and he threw his bottle and smashed the window and it all, all, it all went down. And he came up to me and said, um, sorry about that. Um, you're a rugby player, obviously. Yeah. Every single time. 90% of the time people say to me, rugby. I don't even know what rugby is. Right. Uh, league, I don't know. I don't know. And I said, no, no, no. 
Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And they go, oh, gotcha. And they don't really, they don't really gotcha because, you know, it's not that well known. Yes. But, um, yeah, the, the ears are noticeable. But generally, in my experience, people think that I play rugby. Probably because of the way I'm built as well, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so so the rugby thing gets thrown around a little bit. But uh, these years definitely are a product of hard training in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu over many years. Nine years now I've been doing Jiu-Jitsu. So, the, the, again, another thing that you're throwing yourself in, obviously, the bodybuilding, the Jiu-Jitsu. When you decide to start with filmmaking... Is that something that you thought you seem to be? To me, you seem to be like an all-in guy, all-in or nothing. Nothing. I've quit many, many things in my life yep. that I've tried, and and if it's not working out for me, it's not something I really want to do. I just don't do. That's something I I made a decision a few years ago with um with with what I'm doing in life. You know, through bodybuilding and through jiu-jitsu, I was working jobs. Believe it or not, I was a child carer uh, at the age of 18, so I went through childcare as a as a profession. I was doing bouncing and childcare, and people say to me, Darren, how do you do bouncing and childcare? I say it's the same thing. It's the same job. Uh, young young people pissing their pants and changing their nappy and, and mucking around and all that. And then you got drunk people carrying on like pork chops, throwing chairs and all the rest of it. What's the difference? Right. So, um, I was yeah. a child carer. Then I worked in disability services and I, and I worked with people there. I'm a people person. I like I like uh, I like to work with people. Um, uh, you know, th- then. I had, a, I had an experience in my life yeah, three years ago, just about now. I actually don't know the date. I've blocked it out of my memory. And it's pretty much for the first time I've pretty much I've ever spoken about it. But I had a um, – my sister became sick uh, some years ago, in 2012, 13, I think now. And she developed cancer. And her doctor um, diagnosed her with stage 4 kidney cancer. It's, just, it's pretty strange to be – it was pretty strange at the time to be diagnosed with stage 4 kidney cancer. My question was, what happened to stage 1? Mm. What happened to stage 2? And there was a bit of talk about her being mis- misdiagnosed uh, with a, something or rather at stage 1 and 2 and 3. And then, you know, then she was correct, correctly diagnosed at stage 4 and, um, you know, many people out there that know someone with or themselves with cancer know that stage 4 is – it's over. Stage 4, um, you know, it's pretty tough to come back from. And not to say that people don't, but it's pretty tough. And my sister was diagnosed stage four kidney cancer, and um, you know I was there the day when the guy came out with the piece of X-ray paper, whatever you call it, and he and he handed it to us, and um, and he looked at my sister uh, with a face of like, good luck, good luck, you know, and his face sort of was a bit white and dropped, and he just said good luck, and I knew straight away something was up, so we went to the doctor and. Um, he announced um, that she had cancer, and my sister brought, came to me. And this is the this is the hard part, and this is the part that people don't know. My sister came to me and said, "Darren, no matter what, I never want to hear any bad news. Don't want to know." I said, "That's no problem." So I became my sister's primary carer, um, and we we would go to the, the the cancer doctor, and he would tell us that what she needed to know and what was how she was uh, progressing or degressing or anything like that. And then I'd say, "Okay, Crystal." Um, uh, jump out and um, um, uh, it's the first time I've said her name since she's passed mm. just now um, it's quite tough for me but I, I'd like to use this um, I'd like to use this opportunity to able to speak about this so mm. then if people want to know what I've been through they can listen but um, so I don't have to repeat this or talk about it again but um, the doctor would tell me yes it's 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 going to finish up soon mm. And she was she she survived for a year and a half, and we went through that ordeal for a year and a half, going in and doing the blood transfusions and all that sort of thing. And she went downhill very fast. She was a very lovely, um, bubbly person, 
love life. And um, the whole time that she went through this this cancer experience, she was always talking um, about, um, and I would say to her, when you get through this, you're not going to be ever the same. You'll always be sick your whole life. There's no coming back from this. You'll always be on. You'll always have to go do dialysis, or you'll have to get. But that's part of it. But the main thing is, is that you're going to be okay because that's what she wanted to hear. She wanted to know that. So that's what I. Um, that's what I did. And there's a lot of people that disagree with me in my family. A few of my family members said that's not right, and I took that on, and I took that hard stance to say, look, no. That's what. That's the way we're dealing with it. And you know, she believed that right up until the week before she died. The people came in, unbeknownst to me, I was away for that morning, and they came in and sat down with her, the powers to be at the cancer ward in Hobart, and said, Crystal, um, you're, you're going to die this week, you know. And she flipped out, mm-hmm. and she was um, walking around and putting, she had a, a driver, I think they call it a driver in her hand, and it was attached to her stomach, and they pumped junks into it and all the rest of it. And she just lost it, and she was putting the driver in the microwave and walking around and all this sort of thing. And I, uh, and, you know, we went through that. And her daughter came up that day and of that last week and um, and we sat her down out of the elevator straight away and sat her down in the hallway near the elevator and said, look, your mum's going to die this week. She's, she was 18 at the time, her, mm. her daughter. I said, your mum's going to die this week. And and she broke down and, and it was very tough. And then, um, and then you know, I bought the – I really lost it. I didn't get aggressive or anything, but I lost it and said, everyone in. I brought all the doctors and the team and the family into this room and I said, listen to me very carefully. This is a game of charades. This is uh, this is a time period where we need to tell her what she wants to know and they all understood. It took about 20 minutes. They all understood where we were at. I said, go in there and say that you're wrong and she's going home next week and that's what they did. She died the next day. And um, – that was that's that's tough, you know, and and um, you know, that's um, I was sitting in the room with my sister's body, and my, and and my mum came in and she broke down um, significantly, you know, never never seen that like that. Obviously, her daughter was dead in the room. It was bad, and um, we sat there, and I encouraged my mum by the arm, and I just encouraged her gently to go up to my sister and give her a kiss, and she did that, and you know, I'd never seen, I've seen a lot of shit in my life. I've mm-hmm. seen a lot of tough acts. I've seen a lot of bad dudes. I've seen a lot of badness and violence and craziness, and you know, feats of epic. And I've never seen anything like that. A mother's ability to not even be able to walk and stumble to her daughter and kiss her on the head, you know, for the very last time. And then we left the room, and from that moment on. Um, I, I just decided, you know, I'll never do anything in my life ever again that I don't want to do, because someone who wants to live can't live, mm-hmm. and they're in the room, then they're gone, and I decided that, you know, once you see someone die, it changes your perspective on life in a big way. I do, I care very little about what people, what people think I should be doing. I do exactly what I want to do whenever I want to do it, and I'm not being silly in that. I'm not mm-hmm. being. Um, I'm just trying to get the point across to people that, you know, you have one life and it's extremely short and for some people it can be more than extremely short and you should spend every second of every minute and of every hour, month, year, decade um, spending this life um, in a way that makes you happy. And if you're not doing something that makes you happy, then um, you don't get to do it again. You don't get to do over. You need to, you need to do that. So this is what this filmmaking, it kind of puts you in a place where you feel... You know, this is what I really want to do. I want to capture memories of my life too. Mm. You know, that's why 
I do a lot of that sort of thing with myself. You know, I video a lot of what I do and I want to capture that. And I also want to uh, uh, motivate and inspire people to to do special things and what they want. Like if there's someone listening now that's sitting there with a project that they want to do but they're afraid or or they're, or they're, or they're thinking twice in any way, shape or form as to what it is, as long as it's, you know, above board and it's not to go out and, you know, punch a bunch of people but or anything more serious than that. Look, if it's something that's positive in your life that you want to do but you're afraid of doing it for ridicule or, or, or you know, what people think or you don't think you're ready, just do it. And that's what I did. And that's what, I mean, I've done that all my life, but this 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 um, passing of my sister was the time when uh, I took that very seriously. And um, I won't stop now, you know, filmmaking. I'll, I'll pursue this filmmaking until... Um, Till I'm the most well-known, well-known filmmaker, you know, besides my main man, Quentin Tarantino, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of the guys, uh, one of my, um, one of my uh, mentors, Julian Kaplinski, actually referred to me the other day as um, Darren, Darantino. Very uh, nice. I like it. Darantino. So, Darantino. Um, nice compliment. You know, just to shift gears a little bit, because it's a bit, a bit sad and sorrow what we're talking about here. It's not a bit; it's a lot. But um, it's the first time I've spoken about what I just said. But um, I really encourage people. And uh, if there's anything I can say um, in this interview that um, has a substance of what people can do, rather than us plugging what we're plugging and things like that, and my films and all that, is to say to people, and this will come across in my in my Facebook posts and in my Instagram stuff. You know, just do what you want to do, create your own opportunities, and never give up. And um, if something's not working, um, you know, post it away and, and move on and figure out what you want to do. And, and I, one of my um, things that I've done and one of my um, specific advices to give is to do this, is to write a list, get an A4 bit of paper and write a list, write every idea and every dream and every aspiration on that paper as you can. To get another bit of paper and then narrow that down, take one off and then take another one off and another until you get to three. You know, you might have 50 things on the page you want to do. That's a lot, but, you know, you may only have five. But start with five and narrow it down. Start with, then you'll end up at four, three, two, and you'll get to the main one and pursue that. You know, there's a lot of things I want to do in life. There's a, lot, there's a ton of different things. I want to get out of my fear of heights, but that's bottom of the list right now, right? Don't go to Eureka Tower then. No way. I went down the, um, went down the Huon Valley the other day and I got on this um, air walk into Hoon. Tahoon Airwalk, and I got on it, and my my beautiful girlfriend Iona um, took me on, and she just went boop 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 boop, and I just stood there. She said, "What are you doing?" You want to Six foot two, two hundred and fifty pounds, just stood there, right? Well, I might break the bloody thing because I'm that heavy, right? <laughs> of course, right? It's weighted to uh, um, twelve baby elephants, they said, <laughs> and, and two hundred and forty human beings. You never thing. know. You never know. That's the, right. The screws and all this sort of thing. I'm thinking this is the day it all goes down. And um, I sweated my whole way through and I, I videoed the whole thing. And of course. It'll come out soon, but when I get time to edit it. But look, build a list, narrow it down. Keep trying. Make sure you enjoy it. Darren Petty, be like Darren Petty. Best in the business. Do you like that when uh, Tazzy Brown calls you best in the business? You it's must. The it's the best. You know, I'd say, to, I'd say to, if he forgets, I'll remind him. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a card under your camera that says, make sure you finish off with this? Best in the business. I should. Uh, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for sharing. It's all my pleasure. Darren Petty, truly the best in the business. It's been nice to have you. All the best going forward. I look forward to seeing something Vic Market style. 
Beautiful. A lot of action, a lot of fun, a lot of color. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed our chat with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu practitioner, teacher and filmmaker Darren Petty. For more information on how Darren can help your business improve its social media presence with a very well-priced social media film, go to darrenpettyfilms.com. That's darrenpettyfilms.com. For past episodes of Exceptional People, or if you'd like to subscribe or even be kind enough to leave a comment, go to exceptionalpeople.com.au for all those details. That's exceptionalpeople.com.au. Thanks for listening and bye for now.